Well, good morning again, and uh, good morning, Coldwater. Good to see you. I can't actually see you, but it's good to be seen by you. I'm glad that you're with us. I would love for you to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Acts 14, verse 1, Acts 14, verse 1. That is on page 923 in the Pew Bibles. We are continuing our study through uh, Paul's first missionary journey. Last week, we looked at the fairly lengthy account that we have of his time in Antioch, of uh, Pisidia, and uh, Luke tells that story at some length. Uh, you probably remember that. We read a good chunk of scripture last Sunday. So he tells that story at, at good length for the simple reason that it, it probably represents or probably intends to represent the general pattern. This is, what, this is the sort of sermon Paul preached when he went into a town, and this is the sort of reaction that resulted. And so it gives us the general pattern, and then that pattern is repeated over and over and over again as uh, they make their way through each stop on the line. R.C. Sproul says, helpfully here, everywhere the apostles went, we see God working mightily, bringing conversions from both Jews and Gentiles. In the midst of the bold preaching, divisions occurred, oppositions arose, and hostility set in, and the apostles were barely able, on very many occasions, to escape with their lives, close quote. All right, so that's the general pattern. And like I said, you're going to see versions of that pattern repeated every time uh, they go to a new town. And so my plan is not to preach the same sermon you had last week, uh, this week, and next week, and the week after that. Uh, Rather, my plan is to focus in on the new details, the the specific new details that Luke provides uh, for each stop on the journey. Because I think he's building a bit of a composite picture for us of what it looks like to do mission in a hostile world. And so today we're going to look at the next stop on the line, which is Iconium, and then we're also going to look at the next stop on the line after that, which is Lystra, and I've given the sermon the title, Lessons Along the Way. That's really all we're trying to do. We're trying to mine out of these stories some principles, some insights, some guidance for us as we begin to minister in our increasingly pagan context here in Canada. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned, there's a bit of a general pattern there, and and I think you can see elements of it repeated here in this first story. Once again, the gospel is preached. Once again, there's a good response. Uh, from many people, both Jews and Gentiles. But, of course, not everyone believed. Some didn't believe. And in that group that didn't believe, uh, opposition began to grow, and it became steadily more hostile to the point where, actually, it became violent, and Paul and Barnabas had to leave. All right. Well, as I said, we've seen that story before. But there's a detail here I want to draw your attention to. Look at verses 2 to 3. Listen carefully here. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. 
so they remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. That's an odd combination of sentences, isn't it? The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, so they remained there a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. I think this little detail is making an important point. Luke is saying here that there is a time to stay and a time to go. The time to go comes in verse five, so just drop your eyes a little bit there. Look, Luke says, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. All right, so clearly there's a time to go. There's a, a time to stand your ground, and there's a time to move on to greener pastures, right? That, that's, that's wisdom, Wisdom in the Bible often comes down to knowing what time it is, to understanding the seasons, understanding that there's an appropriate way to act in situation A and an appropriate way to act in situation B. You've, you've probably noticed that if you read through the book of Proverbs, right? In, in one chapter in Proverbs, it says the opposite thing in back-to-back verses. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly unless you become like him as he is. You're like, okay, don't talk to fools. And then it's like, no, 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 answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you're like, what? Uh, and, and the point is, it really, whether or not you engage with a fool really depends on the type of fool you're talking to. It's, it's situational wisdom, right? Knowing what time it is. Ecclesiastes 3, of course, is the most famous expression of this principle in the Bible. The old preacher there says, for everything there's a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. And of course, based on what we've just read here in Acts 14, I think we would add, and there is a time to stay and a time to go. Which raises the question, how do we know which is which? I mean, imagine you're you're a school teacher right now. Imagine you're anybody working in the public school system right now. How do you navigate that? You've got to be wondering, is there still space for an evangelical Christian in this context? I mean, this month has got to be a minefield for you. How are you navigating that? You've got to be asking, should I stay or should I go? Right? When do we stand our ground? When do we seek greener pastures? That is a mission question. That is the kind of question that you're going to find yourself asking whenever you're doing gospel work in hostile territory. And guess what, friends? That's the situation now here in Canada. We are right back in the book of Acts. Listen, it's no, it's no wonder why Like just about every church you know right now is working through the the Acts of the Apostles. Have you noticed that? And, and it's not just churches. I was in a meeting a couple weeks ago for TGC Canada, and we were talking about what, what's going to be the theme for our next national conference, which we're doing out in BC. And, uh, and I didn't come up with a theme. I was just asked to help script it out. But the theme that the group came up with is Acts all over again. Do you see? Because... All of the sudden, like we used to read the Acts and we're like, well, that's interesting. I guess that's how you do ministry in a pagan, hostile uh, context, which is interesting, I guess, but that's not our story. All of a sudden, though, that's our story. 
And so we're, we're all reading Acts of the Apostles with fresh eyes. We're all looking through the stuff to figure out, is there something here for me that can help me as I try to do ministry in this hostile context? It's Acts all over again. And I think this story does have some guidance for us when we're making these kinds of decisions. Do I stay or do I go? I think maybe the first thing this story is saying to that question is that it's helpful to remember that there is a difference between intimidation and mortal danger. In verses 2 to 3, the, the apostles are facing hostility, disagreement, and intimidation. Their Jewish opponents were poisoning the minds of everyone around them, and so they felt isolated and marginalized. Does that sound familiar to you? Anyone else in the room feel isolated and marginalized because of their faith? Anyone else in the room feel like the minds of everyone around us have been poisoned somehow? Yeah, welcome to Canada. That is our reality now. And it's amazing how fast the landscape has changed. Last summer, I think I mentioned this once before here, last summer the Winnipeg Free Press uh, published an Angus Reid survey, or the findings from an Angus Reid survey, that was conducted in Canada after the pandemic to assess the state of religious values in the general population. Here's a line from the article. When asked which religion was more beneficial or negative, respondents named evangelical Christianity as the most damaging, followed by Islam and Catholicism. How in the world did that happen? Now, however it happened, Nowhere did that transition take place faster than in the public school system. When I was a kid growing up in this province, Christianity virtually dominated the public school system. For crying out loud, we said the Lord's Prayer every morning before school. When you look back on that, that's weird. That's almost, people, kids today would not believe that. If you're like, I remember Mrs. Caldwell getting mad at us if we didn't stand up and, and say the Lord's Prayer as loud as we possibly could. How in the world did that happen? Well, it's certainly not happening now, is it? I mean, things were so different. This is 40 years ago, for crying out loud. I had multiple teachers who who were Christians. Uh, The principal of Kettleby Public School, where I went to to public school, was a godly Christian man. He still is a godly Christian man. I ran into him at the men's breakfast in Bracebridge a couple of years ago. Things are different. Somewhere along the way, an adversary poisoned the minds of everyone around us. And now Christians are not only openly scorned, they are considered hateful, bigoted, and narrow-minded. But here's the thing. We are not actually in any physical danger. I mean, even those in the worst situations, to the best of my knowledge, no one is lynching Christian public school teachers. So we're in that dangerous but not deadly zone. By the way, same, same thing for people working in the corporate world. If you're working at TD Bank right now, how are you navigating this context? You're in the dangerous but deadly zone, aren't you? Which means, again, we've, we've come full circle. We're right back in New Testament times, right back with Paul and Barnabas, right, right back in the book of Acts, and right back, to be perfectly honest with you, with most Christians who have lived across the ages. We talked about this a while back when we were going through 1 Peter. 1 Peter actually was written to a group of Christians living not far from where this story in Acts 14 takes place. Interesting. Peter wrote to them to buttress them in advance of some coming turbulence. 
He foresaw that things were going to get difficult. Maybe deadly, but he said definitely difficult. It was, for them, at the time of writing, not yet deadly. Thomas Schreiner describes their situation this way. Speaking of the people who received the letter of 1 Peter, the only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends. In other words, they were exactly where we are now. So what are you going to do? Are you going to stay or are you going to go? Paul and Barnabas, when they encountered this level of opposition, made the decision to stay. They felt compelled to stay. They felt they had an opportunity to awaken people, to to save people from a demonic adversary, and they wanted to do that for as long as they possibly could. So I I think maybe the second bit of guidance we would get in this sort of situation would be this. If If you can offer a gentle and compelling witness in a dangerous but not deadly context, generally speaking, you should do so. That's what Paul and Barnabas do here in Iconium. That's what Peter tells his people to do in 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. You can't do this kind of mission unless Christ is the biggest thing in your life, right? But that little phrase there, honor Christ the Lord as holy, It's grammatically difficult to translate into English. The closest we get is in the Lord's Prayer when we say, hallowed be thy name. If if the Lord is not your biggest thing, if you don't fear the Lord more than you fear your colleagues, if you don't treasure the Lord more than you treasure your reputation, if you don't treasure the Lord more than you treasure your pension, we could just keep going with that list. You can't even begin to do this. But have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, here's, here, this is interesting. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's a blueprint for how to do outreach and how to exercise influence in a hostile culture. Now, notice Peter doesn't tell his people to, you know, make signs and have a protest. Rather, he tells them to live noticeably different and better lives, to shine their light, and then to be prepared, to do your homework, be prepared to answer questions. And and the way he phrases it assumes that the question is going to be asked in an antagonistic fashion, right? He says, give a defense, Meaning he assumes that when people come to you, they're going to be like, why are you nuts? What the heck is wrong with you? Why won't you get on board with X, Y, and Z? Right? And isn't that generally the way the question begins, the conversation begins? And so he's saying, now you be ready for that. Are you ready for that? Get ready. But he doesn't say now, you know, get ready. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So meaning like, eat a, eat a few punches and, and have, have something to say in response. That's a high call, right? That's a very, very high call. But that's how we're going to have to do it. By and large, by and large, I understand there are exceptions to this, but by and large in this country in the years and decades ahead, we're going to have to present a witness of contrast. 
We're going to have to eat a fair bit of vitriol and hostility. But rest assured, here's the good news. God is still in the business of opening eyes. And don't you feel like he's begun to do that? Don't you feel like more and more Canadians are opening their eyes and saying, this is madness. We have missed a turn. How did we end up here? And all of a sudden, they want the truth again. They want reality. They want goodness. They want solidity. And so if they see that in you, then they're going to come. They're going to ask you questions. Maybe they'll come hostile. Maybe they'll come quietly like Nicodemus did at, at, at night. But they're going to come. And they're going to ask you questions. If they see you, if they see you and know that you're a Christian, and they see you eating it, and they see you living like Jesus, then they're going to come and ask you a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. And so I ask them, but do it with gentleness and respect. If I were to try to turn all this into a a little mission imperative, I think I'd put it this way. Be slow to vacate dangerous places. Be slow. I'm not saying don't do it. There's, there's, as we just see in the story, there's a time to stay and there's a time to go. Right? And there's no hard and fast. I can't tell you. I'm just saying be slow. Be slow and reluctant to leave dangerous places. Now, again, is there a time to leave? 100%. 100%. But don't leave too fast and don't leave too easy. Can I tell you something? Sometimes when pastors sit around talking to each other, and sometimes when there are people who know things about the law sitting in the same circle with us, we wonder if maybe it wouldn't be good if a couple of people actually got fired. Because it would be very intriguing to see how this would be handled in the courts. See, most of what we're facing right now in this country is actually just intimidation and marginalization. And there are legal protections that tend to make most employers very hesitant about firing people on the basis of religious belief. And sometimes going through the court process and securing a verdict can actually keep the door open a little longer for those who are coming up behind. Bottom line is, I think Luke has just given us some wisdom here. He's just reminding us that there is a difference between intimidation and mortal peril. So if you can stay and give witness in a dangerous but not deadly place, then you should pray about doing that. Down through the centuries, that has been more or less standard operating procedure for believers in Jesus Christ. Feels new to us, but it is not new. Even in the world today, certainly as we survey the ages. But there is a time to leave. And so in verse 5, when the apostles learn of a plot to have them stoned, they make the decision to leave and to flee to Lystra and Derbe. We'll read that story now. So hopefully you still have your Bibles open. Check back in at verse 8. Now, at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, 
They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So again, we see something of the general pattern here. The gospel is preached. God uh, confirms these messengers with signs and, and wonders, which creates something of an uproar. But the uproar is of a different kind. And that's because we're in a different context. The, the miracle itself is actually strangely similar to the miracle that was performed in Acts 3 by Peter. Do you remember that? In both stories, we've got a lame guy who's been lame from birth, who's never walked. And then all of a sudden, there's a healing, and he's leaping and dancing and praising God, Right? But it turned out very different in Acts 3. In Acts 3, that drew a crowd, and that crowd was receptive to a gospel sermon. And so Peter preached, and there was a great response. Luke says, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So that miracle led to a great sermon, which uh, facilitated a great outpouring of grace, and a great number of people getting saved, praise the Lord. But things did not go that way in Lystra. There's something different about this story, and I think Luke is drawing our attention to it. I. Howard Marshall brings it to the surface for us. He says here, the significance of the story of what happened at Lystra is that here for the first time in Acts, the Christian missionaries came to a town where there was apparently no synagogue or at least no mention is made of it. That's the departure from the pattern. Normally they, they start in the synagogue, right? They talk to people who have background. A bunch of those people are converted and then they go out together and, and, and kind of deal with the general population. Can't do that here because there's no synagogue in Lystra. These people are full-blown pagans. There's, there's, there's no folks here who've been sitting in synagogue, no Jews and no phobuminoi. We used that word last week. It just means God-fearers, which is a technical term for Gentiles who kind of live at the margin of the synagogue. They sit in on the services. They listen in on the stories. They have the same background. None of those people here Right? These are full-blown pagans. These are people who have no knowledge of the Bible, no, no framework, no prior exposure to divine revelation. So what's the point? I think Luke is saying that in a pagan context, miracles are easily misinterpreted. See, the miracle in Acts 3, if you remember, with the fellow, the lame guy who jumped up and started leaping dancing, that drove everybody's minds back into the Old Testament. They were like, oh, wait a second. There were promises about this, that God would visit his people, Messiah would come, and, and the lame would leap for joy. And they're like, okay, all right. Uh, is this that? And Peter is like, well, fancy you asked. I, yes, this is that. And he got into it, right? So that miracle drew, drew, uh, drove their minds back into the Old Testament. But this miracle here in Lystra drove their minds back into Greco-Roman mythology, into their own myths and idolatry. There was, a, there was an old story, there's a myth, about a time in the distant past when Zeus and Hermes 
decided to take on flesh, to disguise themselves as human beings, and to come down and walk among the children of men. And uh, they disguised themselves as simple travelers, humble travelers, and they went and they asked for hospitality, and nobody gave them hospitality. They were rebuffed at every turn. Finally, there was an old couple, an elderly couple, who lived in a tiny straw cottage who invited them in. And so after their adventure, the gods saved and rewarded the old couple, but destroyed everyone else with a flood. So when these pagans in Lystra saw what was done by Paul and Barnabas, where did their minds go? Back into their own idolatry and mythology. They thought that once again, Zeus and Hermes had come down looking for hospitality, and this time they wanted to overwhelm them. So it's like, get out the, you know, pull out the hog, get up, fire up the barbecue, let's go. Look at verses 11 to 13. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, sang in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, those were the two from the story, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. You seeing that? These people had grown up in the shadow of the temple of Zeus. Their entire frame of reference was pagan mythology. And therefore, there was just no chance whatsoever that they were going to make right use, that they were going to understand the significance of this miracle. In fact, in this context, the miracle turned out to be more of a hindrance than a help. I think there's something for us to see there. I think that some of us are waiting for for God to do something spectacular that would get the attention of our friends and neighbors. Maybe if one winter, all the Canada geese, instead of flying south, like put on a cabaret and danced out the hallelujah chorus, maybe then, like all our friends and neighbors, like, I'm not even sure that would be helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that our friends and neighbors would be able to connect the dots. Would they have the background to even make sense? of something of that nature. The, the point is, it's a very different world than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Our friends and neighbors today have precious little Bible background. Are there pockets here and there? Absolutely, there are pockets here and there, but those pockets are increasingly further and, and farther between. So I don't think we should be putting all our eggs in that basket. I think we should be doing what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is trying to get their attention away from the spectacular, and actually towards the substantial, life-reorienting message of the gospel, which leads to our third lesson along the way. In a pagan context, the gospel represents an offer of redemption, reality, and reconciliation. Look at what Paul says there. Look, Look at verse 15. Man, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So this is how the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to pagans. We get a longer version of this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians, of course, was written to a very similar group of people. Ephesians was written to a group of people who had grown up in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. So they were close cultural cousins with the people we're looking at here. 
To them, Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You can see the similarities there. Paul presents a gospel that is really a message of redemption. It offers freedom and release from a dead and vain worldview. He says the gospel is like the red pill in the matrix. That'll make sense to about half the people in the room. He's saying, if you swallow it, you don't need to have seen the movie to understand the reference. If you swallow it, it will wake you up and release you from the machine. It will allow you to unhitch from a deadly and dehumanizing system. That's the gospel. The gospel is a gift from God that is intended to bring you back to life and to teach you how to be a human being again and that will restore you to your created and originally intended glory and dignity. That's the gospel. That's the message we need to preach to a pagan culture, a gospel of redemption and freedom. And we talked about this last week. Real freedom is not the freedom to eat whatever you want, smoke whatever you want, and sleep with whoever you want. That is the freedom of pigs. And if you live like a pig, you're going to get dirty. By the way, did you see the news uh, this past week out of the UK? According to the Guardian, cases of syphilis were at their highest level in 75 years in England last year, while gonorrhea cases reached a record high, figures show. Shocking. Shocking. Who, who would have thought that if, if we encourage people to just sleep with whomever they want, that we might end up with a plague of STDs in our nation? Shocking. It's almost like you can't thumb your nose at the natural world, at the design of God, and not come away unscathed. Huh. Who would have thunk it? Paul is saying to people living in the mud, are you done yet? Are you done? Is that enough? Would you, would you like to unplug from that? Would you like me to introduce you to your creator? Would you like me to introduce you to you? Because God made a good world, and he made a good you. But there's an enemy out there who has poisoned your mind, who's made you a captive. Would you like to be free. That's how you preach the gospel to pagans. That's how Paul did it. That's the good news that turned the pagan world completely upside down in the first century. And by the grace of God, that is the same message again that can turn the country of Canada upside down in the 21st century. So preach it. Preach it in dangerous places. 
Preach it through closing windows and slamming doors. Preach it anytime you're given an opportunity. But do it with gentleness and respect. (laughs) Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we need these patterns, these principles, but how also, Lord, we need your help. Patterns and principles are wonderful, but if you do not give us power through the gift of your Holy Spirit, if you do not give us help, if you do not give us strength, if you don't give us hope, if you don't give us endurance, if you don't give us words to say when we open our mouths, Lord, we will be able to do nothing of what you've shown us today. So thank you, Lord. You've opened our eyes. You've illuminated a path. Now we ask for help from your spirit that we would walk upon it for the glory of God and Christ and for the good of all our friends and loved ones, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.